Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's make sure that I already saw two or three people turn off their cell phones. That's Make sure your cell phones are turned off. There goes Bruce, turning off his cell phone. Cell phones are off, and... Um, We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First uh, John 1.9 if necessary. Make sure we're in fellowship. The issue in fellowship is always cleansing. One of the most interesting studies I did a number of years ago was to trace the, uh, <clears throat> the, the principle of cleansing from sin throughout the Scripture. And you know, there's been some debate and has been debate theologically over the nature of confession if you need to, if Christians need to confess their sins after salvation, and um, the real issue in First John one nine isn't confession of sin, it's a need for post salvation cleansing from sin. That's the real issue is is forgiveness and cleansing. And you trace that concept all the way through the Bible, you see that in every dispensation there's always some um, promise and some procedure sacrifices, usually in everything but the church age, for a cleansing from sin after after salvation to come into the presence of God and for uh, post-salvation uh, sanctification. And so in the church age, we have 1 John 1, 9, and you see that that's the issue really in the other passages that talk about uh, confession. It really focuses on the idea of post-salvation cleansing. That's the whole picture of uh, John 13 when Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples is that you have already, you are all already clean, he says. That's positional cleansing at salvation. But they need to have post-salvation cleansing. Washing the feet symbolize that. So it's important, and it's important to go through that. And we emphasize that when we, before every Bible class, go through the process just as a pedagogical reminder that we need to keep short accounts with God and be confessing confessing our sins to stay in fellowship because it's the Holy Spirit who's the one who works in our life to produce spiritual growth, and that work is hindered whenever we are living on the power of the sin nature. So we have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. It is the teaching of your word that provides us with the real power to change the way we think, to change the way we live as we learn it, study it, as the Holy Spirit makes it real to us in our thinking, and as we decide to apply it in the various tests and challenges and problems that we face in life. And Father, as we continue our study of Solomon's prayer, we pray that we might be uh, encouraged in our own prayer life to make it uh, more in-depth as we think through promises, we think through the different situations that have occurred in throughout the Scripture and the lives of different believers, that we can use these to uh, give a, another level of depth to our own prayer life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We started into the core of Solomon's prayer last week. That begins in verse 33. Now I'm going to again do what I did last week using the um, <coughs> Lagos program to give us an opportunity at times just to create a parallel screen between two different passages so that we can all see uh, how to or how Solomon's prayer is connected to uh, previous passages, primarily Deut- uh, Deuteronomy uh, 29 and 30 and Leviticus 
uh, 26, where we have the listing of the five stages or five cycles of uh, discipline. And <clears throat> I don't usually use it this way, so it's sort of an ongoing learning process while I'm up here. But the prayer itself started earlier than verse 33. There's an introduction which began back in verse 22 when Solomon stood up and he began to pray. And from verse 23 down through verse 32, there is a prelude, an introduction to his prayer, which is a rehearsal of God's promise to David and how God had fulfilled that promise in light of uh, the fulfillment of building the temple itself. And the focus of the prayer is on God's future forgiveness of the nation of their sin because Solomon, as a student of the Word, as a student of the Mosaic Law, as a student of what um, what Moses said in Deuteronomy, it was clear to Solomon that the nation would eventually apostatize they would fall away from the truth. They would go into idolatry. Eventually, God would fulfill the promise of the cycles of discipline to the extent of the fifth cycle of discipline, which would bring about the removal of the people from the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But embedded within the discipline passages, the judgment passages in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 29 and 30, is the promise that when the people turn to God, turn back to him and confess their sins, then God would forgive them and he would restore them to the land from all the nations throughout the whole earth where God had scattered them. And so <clears throat> Solomon is standing as the king of the nation, still a united kingdom, standing as a king of the nation, as a representative of the nation in this particular prayer. And he is calling upon God in this prayer to remember his promises. So it's a, it is a form of the faith rest drill where you're claiming a promise, mixing your faith with a promise. And we see how his thinking is so saturated by the Word of God that it shapes everything in this particular prayer. And that's the point that I'm making as we go through the seven different petitions that are contained in this prayer is so that we can compare this with previous Scripture and see just how Solomon, as a mature believer, uses the Scripture in forming his petitions his petitions to God for the people. So the first request is given in verses 31 through 32, and I'm just going to briefly review these. We covered these last time. The first one has to do with the instance of the law related to the uh, <clears throat> law of love in Leviticus 19.18, that every Jew was to love his neighbor as himself, and as part of the Ninth Commandment and the Ten Commandments, that they were not to be a false witness against another believer, I mean against another uh, person, one of their neighbors. And so the first case that uh, Solomon mentions is in the case of someone who has sinned against his neighbor, is made to take an oath, and he and because of the circumstances, there don't appear to be any witnesses because within the Mosaic Law, there are clear regulations that if a charge is made, there need to be uh, two witnesses. But in this case, there's no witness, so the oath is taken in the temple, which is uh, brought into the prayer because it's the dedication of the temple. And that God is the one who is to adjudicate in this manner, matter of disagreement. So he calls upon God to exercise consistent justice on the basis of the law, condemning the one who is wicked by bringing judgment on his head and, on the other hand, to justify the righteous, that is, the one who is obedient to the law. The terminology here is not related to justification and righteousness and salvation, what we call phase one salvation. It's related to the one who is right before the law versus the one who is wrong before the law. So that's covered in the first request, verses 31 through 32, and <clears throat> directly comes out of Old Testament passages such as uh, Leviticus 19:18, uh, Exodus 22:8 through 11, uh, and 
this shows how uh, Solomon has prayer is shaped by these circumstances. Then we come to the second request that he gives, and this is covered in verse 33. Now, uh, if you notice on the program that's up on the screen that there's a bold face 33 and a bold face 35, if you hadn't noticed it, if you have a New American Standard Bible, that's how they indicate paragraphs. You'll notice that there's a, a slightly heavier bold on your verse numbers, and that's not in the original text. That's the result of the uh, the editors and, and the translators where they believe the uh, paragraphs are. In this case, I think they're right. The second request is given in verses 33 to 34, and this relates to the circumstances when Israel is defeated militarily by an enemy. But it is not simply a military defeat because if you read into verse 34, they are, when they are forgiven, when, when God forgives them after they confess their sin, they're brought back to the land. So it is not a, simply a, a military defeat such as we had during the period of the judges where they are conquered by a foreign power, but they're not removed from the land. So he specifically has in view here uh, the fifth cycle of discipline. Part of this is covered in Leviticus uh, chapter 26 and also uh, verse 17, which is, deals with primarily with simply uh, military defeat. I will set, God said I would, <clears throat> he would set his face against them so they would be struck down before their enemies. That happened various times, but it did not result in their ultimately being removed from the land. This only occurred, I mean, the ultimate... Discipline of the fifth cycle of discipline only occurred uh, twice in Israel's history, or you could say three times if you count uh, the division of the northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom went out in 722, and the uh, southern kingdom went out in 586. And the fifth cycle of discipline is covered down in verse 29. So, Solomon is really weaving together verses and ideas from different portions of the chapter. And in verse 28, we read, In spite of all of this, if you don't obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sin. So this introduces the fifth cycle. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. That's because they would be under siege, and that's fulfilled. In um, 586, it was a horrible time when Nebuchadnezzar's troops surrounded the city, and it was uh, it happened again in 70 A.D. when the Romans were besieging the city of Jerusalem. Uh, verse 30, I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you, God said. I will lay waste your cities as well, will make your sanctuaries desolate. And that indicates also the destruction of the temple. And I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over you. Yet, he says, verse 33, you, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Verse 34 relates this to the Sabbaths. This is the same passage Daniel read last time we went to Daniel chapter 9 and saw that in reading Jeremiah, also because of in connecting it in Daniel's mind back to Leviticus 26, Daniel understood that once the uh, period of 70 years was up for giving the land rest for the Sabbath, and God would bring them back to the land. So uh, Daniel is doing the same kind of thing in Daniel 9 in representing the people and praying to God for forgiveness. So that's the second request in <clears throat> verses 33 and 34. Then we have... The third request begins in verse 35, which deals with economic disaster, famine. The heavens are shut up. There's no rain because they have sinned against you. And then they pray, confess your name, turn from their sin. When you afflict them then, the request is to hear in heaven, forgive the sin of your servants, teach them the good way in which they shall walk, and send rain on their land. We saw that's fulfilled during the time of Elijah 
beginning in 1 Kings 17. Then the fourth request, which is where we stopped last time, begins in verse 37. And the situation is a situation of famine. So just once again, as Solomon is praying this prayer, he's not going through the cycles of discipline in the same order we find them in Leviticus 26. What he does is he just takes uh, examples of the different types of discipline God is going to bring upon Israel and makes those part of his request. So he's not following a, <clears throat> a precise order in terms of praying first in terms of the first cycle of discipline and then second in terms of the second cycle of discipline. He's simply focusing on when God brings these various judgments into Israel, uh, then and they turn and pray to God, the request is that God would forgive them. And that's the drumbeat that you hear all the way through the chapter, is when they, the people uh, have sinned, when they confess your name, turn from their sin, um, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your, of your servants. So we come to verse 37 which is our fourth request. He says, If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands towards this house, then... Here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. So it starts off with a reference to famine. Now this is a direct uh, allusion to two passages in Leviticus 26. And in Leviticus 26, we can look at verse 16, which is in the first cycle of discipline, where God said, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes, cause the soul to pine away. Also, you are so you see uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. And so there's the idea of foreign invasion and also in verse 25 of Leviticus, I will also bring a sword against you, a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you that you sh so that you will be delivered into enemy hands. So this is all part of the back backdrop for understanding this particular type of discipline. Then we can also go to Deuteronomy Chapter 28, verse 21, 22, then we'll also look at 25 and 38. The Lord will make you, in, in Deuteronomy 28, 21, the Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with fiery heat. So it's talking about the effects of various plagues that bring about all of these different uh, diseases and these different maladies. And uh, also with the sword indicating death, because a sword will bring death through military uh, defeat, and with blight and with mildew. Now, blight and mildew are mentioned in both the First Kings 8 passage as well as Deuteronomy 28-22. And this was a disease that would uh, affect the crops. And so it, when the crops are affected by these diseases, then there's no uh, production, there's no harvest of uh, grain, of wheat, of corn. Well, not corn, they didn't have corn in Israel, but it would form on the grain and form a rust on the grain. And so this would then destroy the, the crops, and you would have uh, famine in the land. And this is part of the divine discipline. Deuteronomy 28:25 mentions defeat again, military defeat again, and verse 38 takes us into the area of the uh, of the locust plague. 
You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, in verse 39, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. Now, what's interesting is that as at the same time that we're studying this, I'm also reading through the uh, seal judgments in Revelation chapter 6, and you see certain parallels. And there's also some parallels in the, in the judgments we'll see in Revelation to what went on when God brought judgment against Egypt. God tends to use the same uh, things in order to bring judgment and to get people's attention. So this, this uh, fourth request relates back to the promises that God made related to discipline of, of Israel for their idolatry. So as Solomon prays, he's thinking through these passages and he is summarizing all of the different ways God is going to bring this kind of judgment on the people for disobedience, famine, disease, plague, uh, various diseases that affect the crops, the locusts and grasshoppers that come and eat the crops, military defeat if their enemy besieges them, and various other diseases. And then he says, whatever prayer or supplication is made. And the emphasis always goes from man's failure and God's judgment to grace. Every time you see this, this whole prayer is an appeal to the grace of God, which was uh, part of his promise to forgive them. That despite their disobedience, despite their rebellion, despite all of their idolatry, God promises a, always there's a way of salvation and there is a way of deliverance. And so no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what sin, what failures there are, that the principle is that God always has a gracious provision for us that we can recover and that God, after we confess our sin and after we turn to him, God then can bless us and restore us. So this is the principle we see again, and Solomon prays to God here in heaven. Listen to the prayer. It's an efficacious hearing because the people have turned back to God. Here in heaven, forgive them and act. And we, so we see once again the same uh, types of things are mentioned as Solomon calls upon God to forgive them and then to act on their behalf. And all of this comes out of the covenant. So that brings us down to the fifth request, which is in verse 41. And the fifth request focuses on the stranger in Israel, the foreigner who is living uh, in the land. And this is very important to understand because Israel is a land that God gave to Israel. He did not give the land, and there's no, under the Mosaic Law there's no inheritance and there's no possession in the land for the non-Jew, for the foreigner. That doesn't mean that they can't live there, that they are not protected by the law, and they're protected by the law. They can live there, and they can uh, experience a measure of blessing, but they can't enter into uh, ownership and inheritance because they are not of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it, once again, these passages related to the foreigner in the land, the sojourner in the land, the one who's who's traveling, must be interpreted within the with the background of the Mosaic law. They are treated fairly. They are treated in grace. They are treated according to the law. They are not <clears throat> demeaned, but they are uh, they can't have the same level of ownership, possession, inheritance rights as those who are in the land, unless they marry lest they become a, uh, a, a convert and unless they um, become a proselyte, which, and we have a couple of examples of that in the Old Testament, two that stand out are Rahab and Ruth. Both cases are women. In both cases, they marry Jews, and so because of their marriage, they then come uh, into the line of Christ, for one thing, and they come under under the Mosaic Law, when they become believers. So uh, Ruth was a Canaanite, lived in Jericho. And, I mean, Rahab was a Canaanite, lived in Jericho. And Ruth 
is from Moab. And so verses 41 to 43 relates to justice from the law uh, <clears throat> towards the Gentile, towards the stranger. So in verse 41, we read that the situation is when the foreigner, who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake. So this is a believer, a Gentile believer in the Old Testament coming from uh, anywhere outside of the land, but this is an Old Testament believer, but not a Jew. And then there's a parenthetical explanation in verse 42, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand. And the reputation of Israel's God had uh, gone out throughout the ancient world. We know of one example of that in uh, the book of Joshua. You remember that when Israel came out of the land after they had gone to Mount Sinai, spent a year at Mount Sinai, where they received the Mosaic Law instructions for building the tabernacle. They built the tabernacle, uh, made all of the uh, uh, clothing for the priests, established the priesthood, consecrated Aaron as high priest and the Levitical priest. And then after a year, they celebrated the second Passover, and then they headed uh, <clears throat> across the wilderness to Kadesh Barnea, which would be the jumping-off point for the conquest to go into the land. When they arrived at Kadesh Barnea, they chose two men from each of the 12 tribes that would go into the land to do a uh, on a reconnaissance patrol, not to see if they could conquer the Canaanites, but in order to get the lay of the land and to see how every how, how they would then go about the process of going going in and conquering it, because God had already promised them that He would give them into into their hand, and when they uh, uh, went into the land, they came back and they said, well, they were scared to death. Ten of the twelve spies were scared to death. They said, we can't do this. There's too many people. They have giants. They have these walled cities. We're not trained. We can't do this. And only Joshua and Caleb had confidence or faith in God in order to trust him. Now, the, here are the Jews. The irony of this is as the majority of Israel, except for probably four, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb, except for those four, the rest of the Jews are are afraid of the Canaanites. But what we find out when the next generation actually does invade the land and the uh, they come to Jericho and they send two spies into Jericho to... Uh, check things out there, and they are hidden by Rahab. Rahab informs them that the people in Jericho and the Canaanites have been scared to death of the Jews for the last 40 years because they heard what God had done to the Egyptians. God wiped out the mightiest army on earth in the Red Sea, and God had virtually destroyed the might and the power of the Egyptian uh, kingdom at that particular time, and word of that went throughout the entire ancient world. And people knew who the Israelites were, and they knew about the power of the God of Israel, and the Canaanites did. And so while the Jews were uh, shaking in their boots at Kadesh Barnea, the irony is that the Canaanites were also scared to death because they knew that, that the battle was the Lord's. So the unbelievers understood the principle when the, when the believers uh, at Kadesh Barnea fail to trust God. That's the irony there. So the idea of the reputation of God going throughout the Gentile world was not unusual, and it's backed up by episodes in Scripture. So Solomon refers to this and says, when these Gentiles from distant countries come here, and we're going to see one in Solomon's very own uh, lifetime as the uh, Queen of Sheba will be one of these Gentiles who will hear about God, hear the reputation of Solomon, and will travel from her country to uh, Jerusalem in order to see the splendors of, of Solomon's empire and to learn about God. So <clears throat> much of what Solomon says is a foreshadowing of what will take place within the rest of the uh, rest of First Kings and Second Kings. 
For he says, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, so when the Gentile believer comes and prays at the temple, Solomon says, Here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you. Answer his prayer just as you would someone who's part of the covenant. So here we see uh, the uh, outworking of the third paragraph, again, of the Abrahamic covenant. Those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. And so Gentiles are blessed by association with Israel, and when Gentiles would come to the temple, they would have their prayer answered as well because they are believers and can come before God on the basis not of a covenant they have with God, but of the Abrahamic covenant. So Solomon prays to God, uh, <clears throat> Here in heaven your dwelling place, do according to all that the foreigner calls upon you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name. And this, again, emphasizes a principle in prayer that one of the reasons we call upon God to act in, in our lives and in the lives of others is for the sake of his reputation and that his word and that the gospel will go out and be heard by those who don't know it. So he calls upon God to answer the prayers of the Gentile believers that come, that the whole earth may hear about you and know your name and come to fear you as do your people Israel, and this is the beginning of wisdom to fear God. It's more than respect. It is a, it's a, it's a healthy respect, but it's a, it's a sense of also fear of the consequences of disobedience, that God will not only bless us when we're obedient, but will also bring discipline and judgment when you're disobedient. So Solomon prays that he would, God would answer the Gentiles' prayer, that all the earth may come to know you, to fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. The prayer is theocentric. He's calling upon God to answer his prayer, not because of what it's going to do for him, not because of what it's going to do for this particular Gentile, but because of the way it will uh, uh enhance God's reputation among people. He is concerned about the influence of the gospel and the truth among all of mankind more than anything else. So he is focused on the reputation of the reputation of God. So this is the fifth request of the prayer and in verses 44 and 45 we come to the sixth petition. There he says, when your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen, that's Jerusalem, and the house which I have built for your name, the temple, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. So the situation is when Israel is going into battle that, and in a just war, and that God would listen to their prayer and would give them victory in the battle. And the, the, the um, prerequisite for this is that Israel would not be in a position of disobedience, which would call for defeat in that situation, but that it would be a situation where they were obedient to God and God is protecting them uh, from their enemies, which is promised uh, in the law. That brings us down to the seventh and the last petition, which begins in verse 46. And again, he returns to the theme of sin and the theme of, of discipline, uh, God's judgment on them. And again, the backdrop for this is Leviticus 26, verses 27 through 35. And this brings us to a, it's as subsequent to the um, fifth cycle of discipline, but that section from 37, or excuse me, from 27 down to 35 includes the fifth cycle of discipline and subsequent um, subsequent judgments. So we go over to Leviticus uh, 26, 27. 
We've already looked at the uh, what God says in terms of the fifth cycle of discipline. We covered down to verse 33. Beyond that, God says, Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living in it. But he goes on to explain in verse 36 to 38, As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies, that is, those who are left alive. And the sound of a driven leaf will chase them. In other words, they'll be fearful. They won't have any confidence in themselves. Uh, even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from a sword and they will fall. They will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing and you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies. But you will perish among the nations and your enemy's land uh, will consume you. And so this is the promise of divine discipline. Now, when we look at verse 46 of 1 Kings, what Solomon is saying in his prayer, he says, when, they, when the people sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, if they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent, which means to turn, and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned and have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. And I'll just stop there. One thing I want to note is the basis for divine judgment. Again and again, as we go through both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Jewish uh, New Testament, I mean, excuse me, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament, we come across terminology related to God's judgment. We see this in, we'll see this in Revelation, where we use the term anger and we use the term wrath. Now, when most people look at those words, they think in terms of human emotion. They think in terms of God witnessing disobedience in sort of a real-time scenario and then God gets mad at Israel or he gets mad at believers because of what they just did. And so out of anger, God judges. But this, is, this doesn't fit a sound understanding of the character of God. God does not judge out of emotion. God does not discipline out of emotion. God judges from the basis of his legal contracts and he brings discipline on the basis of his character. And he is slow to bring discipline, and he is slow to bring judgment, because he is constantly extending grace to the sinner. And one of the things that <clears throat> is brought out in this, these kinds of passages is demonstrated in this particular word that is translated angry. Because uh, the way I treat the, this terminology, wrath and anger, these so-called emotions in God, is these are called anthropopathisms. And an anthropopathism is when um, human emotion is ascribed to God, and he doesn't possess those emotions. But they are used that way, and it's ascribed to God, in order to give man a point of contact or comparison in order that man can better understand uh, the plans, the policies, or the procedures of God. And there's uh, anthropopathism deal with emotion, such as God's anger, God's wrath. Then you have also God, it, re, it made God sorry that he made man in Genesis chapter 6. These are all anthropopathisms. There's a lot of debate among um, scholars as to whether anthropopathisms are legitimate, and there's even been debate among uh, scholars whether or not anthropomorphisms, which just seems absurd to me, whether those are legitimate. And an anthropomorphism is when human body parts are ascribed to God, which God doesn't possess. He doesn't have a human eyes and nose and ear and finger uh, like we do. But these these physical body parts are ascribed to God in order to 
uh, provide an analogy, a point of contact, so that we can understand, once again, something related to God's character or God's policy or his attributes. And this idea of anger really combines both of them. I remember uh, some years ago getting into in, in a discussion with a, another pastor over this as we were working through some of these things, and this pastor said, well, it's very clear from these passages Again and again, God is angry. That's emotion. How can you say God doesn't have emotion? And, and, and this, this pastor, uh, when I responded saying it was an anthropopathism, said that, well, it can't, he, he rejected that notion. That's popular today among, especially in Old Testament um, situations. And I said, well, you have a real problem with this whole concept of anger because you want to say it's literal, it's not a figure of speech, and I want to say it's a figure of speech, and I can prove it and you can't. Because if you look at this word, I'm going to put my cursor there because the, the, you can't probably can't read that. It's too small. But I can read it to you. This is the word anaf, and it is a verb meaning to be angry or enraged or to breathe through the nose. That's its root semantic meaning is to me, breathe through the nose. And so that is an anthropomorphism. What it's literally saying is God starts breathing heavy. Now, in other passages... And, for example, in Exodus, after uh, Moses uh, comes down from Mount Sinai and, and Aaron has made the golden calf and God is exceedingly angry against the people, the way that anger is expressed in, in Hebrew uh, doesn't say God was angry. There's no word for anger. It uses, a, it uses an anthropomorphism to express God's anger. And <clears throat> the word that is used there. It's also related to the nose, and the, the idiom is that God's nose burned. And whenever you'd say that anybody gets mad, what you're, what, the way you would say it in Hebrew is that so-and-so's nose is burning. Their nose gets red. You know, when somebody gets really mad and their face turns red and their nose turns red, and that's the picture of, of anger. So my point in this, in this debate was, I said the, the very concept of anger in the Old Testament or God's anger in the Old Testament is described anthropomorphically. So it's, it's described with an anthropomorphic figure of speech that in turn is an anthropopathism because the fact that God's nose burned, he doesn't have a nose, and it's not burning. So it's not literal to begin with. You can't even you can't you can't argue at all that the the, the phrase is literal. It's a figure of speech uh, from the very beginning, and so what this emphasizes though is the extent and the extremity of the judgment of God. And we we use similar types of idioms in English when we talk about a judge wanting to throw the book at somebody or. Uh, we experience the wrath of the court. Uh, we're, we're not saying that the judge was emotional. We're simply saying that we were disciplined or punished or someone was punished to the fullest extent of the law. And that's the idea behind all of these idioms is not to say that God is losing his temper or God just gets all emotional because man is disobedient. Uh, you don't ever want a judge to execute justice from emotion. That's not objective. You want a judge to execute punishment from a position of objectivity and a position of integrity. And so we have to understand all of these expressions, and we see it a lot in with the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God in Revelation and during the Tribulation, that this is the uh, fullest extent of God's judgment on man. So that's what Solomon is saying here when uh, the people sin, and you execute judgment. You bring discipline upon them and deliver them to an enemy. Now, the, once they're captive, verse 47 describes what happens after they have been disciplined. They, they've been taken away captive. This happened in Babylon. They, they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive, and they repent, which means that they turn and this is what uh, Daniel did in Daniel chapter 9, and make supplication to, to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, 
We have sinned and have committed iniquity. So this is their confession. They admit their sin and how they have violated the law and have acted wickedly. And so the petition is expressed through the if clause. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray toward pray to you toward the land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name. Then, verse 49, Then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven your dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive, that they may have compassion on them. This is what occurred when Cyrus uh, uh, issues a decree in 538 that the Jews can return to their land, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your inheritance which you have brought forth from Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace, verse 52, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call upon you. And so he reminds God at this point of the covenant with Moses, their redemption from Egypt, the promises that he made in the Mosaic law. And then he goes on to describe this in verse 53. For you have separated them from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance, as you spoke through Moses your servant, when you brought out brought our fathers forth from Egypt, O Lord God. Now, a parallel passage for this is found in uh, Deuteronomy 28, 36, and 37, which talks about the uh, <clears throat> the judgment of God and the, and the discipline there. But then if we look at Deuteronomy 28, 49, and following, uh, Deuteronomy... 28, let me see, make sure I have the right chapter here, verse 28, it's a long chapter, describes, a long section, describes again how God will bring a nation from afar as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand. Incidentally, verse 49 of Deuteronomy 28 is a backdrop to the passage in Isaiah uh, chapter 28, which talks, which is a warning that the Jews would see as divine discipline. They would hear a uh, foreign language in the streets of Jerusalem. And that is picked up in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 14 by the Apostle Paul as he's talking about the gift of languages, that this is one of the purposes for, for the gift of languages, the gift of tongues, is that when they, when the Jews would hear these Gentile languages, in Jerusalem, it would be a sign of impending judgment. And he, and he quotes from Isaiah uh, chapter uh, uh, 14, and then, uh, I mean, Isaiah chapter 28, and then that in turn goes back to this prophecy here that they would he- hear from Gentile uh, languages, a language that they do not understand, a nation, verse 50, a fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. And so there's a long description here in verses 49 down through the end of that chapter as to how God is going to bring this discipline upon uh, Israel. And a result is given. Let's turn over there. I'm not going to go through the whole passage, but just highlight a couple of things in Leviticus, I mean in Deuteronomy 20. Twenty-eight, verse sixty-two. At the end of this time, God promised to bring all of these things against Israel, so that this time that they're out of the land is a time of ongoing judgment. And a result is, verse 62 says, Then you will be left few in number, 
whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven because you did not obey the Lord your God. That will be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation period because so many of the Jews, at least half of the Jews who are alive at the beginning of the tribulation, will die during the tribulation. Verse 63 says, It shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. That is a promise of judgment. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. The promise in verse 64 and 65 is their scattering among the nations and to the point that they, your life, verse 66, your life shall hang in doubt before you and you will be in dread night and day and have no assurance of your life. And this, of course, came to a horrible fulfillment in the, in the Holocaust during World War II. Then God's grace is mentioned in verse 68. The Lord will bring you back to Egypt, or, or this is still judgment, bring you back to Egypt in ships by the way out which I spoke to you. You'll never see it again. Then in verse uh, 30, chapter um, 29, we have the promise of the land again restated and how God is going to uh, give them, ultimately give them the land. And then in chapter 30, verse 5, We have the promise of restoration. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. This is the first hint, too, as well as we've studied on Thursday night of the, of the new covenant, how God is going to there will be, will change them uh, from the inside. So in the seventh petition, which is one of the longest sections in the prayer, there is a, an emphasis on the forgiveness of God and his ultimate restoration of, of the people. So that brings us then to the conclusion to the prayer, which begins in and his benediction on the temple, which begins in verse 54. When Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. He stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to what he has promised. So he has already fulfilled promises to David, promises to Moses, promises to Abraham, and because he has fulfilled these promises, literally, we know that the other promises that are made in Leviticus 26 and Leviticus 27, uh, Deuteronomy, that these promises will also be fulfilled literally. Not one word has failed of all of his good promise. We can always count on God to fulfill his word. His promises will not be broken and his promises will not be made in vain. So all the promises that he made to Moses uh, will be fulfilled. Verse 57. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances which he commanded our fathers. Now these two verses emphasize volition and per the personal responsibility side on the, on the part of Israel. On the one hand, um, Solomon knows that Moses had prophesied and God had promised that the people eventually would be disobedient, that they would not walk with God, that God would discipline them and would take them out of the land, but that God in his grace would forgive them when they turned back to him and restore them to the land. Nevertheless, even though he knows that that's going to happen because God has said it and promised it and that promise is not going to, not, not going to be broken, he still prays for what they should do because they have volition and they have personal responsibility and it's not a fatalism that just because God has said this will happen, 
It doesn't mean that it will happen in this generation or to you. So there is this constant prayer that this generation and these people will be obedient to God and will keep his commandments and his ways and be faithful to him. And then as he comes to his conclusion, he says and may the, in verse 59, And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no one else. Notice, again, everything is oriented ultimately to God's reputation and God's character, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no one else. Then in conclusion, in verse 61, he says, Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted uh, to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. So the prayer also functions as a reminder to the people of and warning of future disobedience and divine judgment, which should challenge them to make sure they're continuing to walk uh, in obedience before the Lord. That concludes his dedication, his prayer of dedication, and in verses 62 and following, we see the all of the pomp and circumstance and the sacrifices that are brought before the Lord. He offers a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, uh, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. Just think of the logistics of this. 22,000 oxen are sacrificed on the altar. It must have taken most of the day. They must have started very early in the morning. Bible class is going to be at 5.30 in the morning. You all ready? We're going to dedicate the church at that time. Then we're going to have sacrifices all day long. That's what happened. 22,000 oxen, and they had to do it very efficiently. They had to have, uh, which we know this from later descriptions of how they uh, would sacrifice all of the sheep, all the, uh, rather all the lambs at the uh, at Passover, is they would have an assembly line. They, you know, you were taught in school, and I was too, that Henry Ford started the assembly line. No, the Jews did in the Old Testament. They would line up, and they would just move one animal to another, and and as the line of priests would pass the animals up to the altar, they would uh, slit its throat and sacrifice it and then move it off the altar and move the next one on and slit its throat and move it off and move the next one on. And just think of the of the blood and the smell and the flies. It's horrible. But see, this is to remind us of the horror of sin and the horror of the kind of death that is required to pay for sin. And so all these sacrifices are uh, very unpleasant. And you think of the noise and the, and the uh, that made by the oxen as they're killed, and and all of the smell, and, and then and then 120,000 sheep. This was just an, in, an enormous uh, slaughter, and then the value that would be placed on all of these oxen and all of these sheep as a sacrifice before God. Verse 64, on the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, because there he offered the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fat of the peace offerings, for the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offering. So they had to set up a secondary altar to complete the process. And in conclusion, Solomon observed the feast at that time, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God for seven days and seven more days, even 14 days. And the description from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt uh, defines the land that uh, that is under the control of Israel at that time and that people came from throughout the land in order to celebrate uh, this feast for uh, two weeks. And verse 66, on the eighth day, he sent the people away. They blessed their king. Then they went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. So there is a uh, 
an ongoing uh, an ongoing celebration after the eighth day as the people go away and go back to their homes, remembering God's faithfulness to His promise. This marks the high water mark of Solomon's reign, and from this point on, he succumbs to apostasy gradually, falls away from God, and in the uh, next few chapters, we'll see the deterioration of Solomon's spiritual life and its impact on the nation. Uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the, <clears throat> this lesson as we go through the prayer of Solomon, realizing the uh, just the brilliance of this prayer as it is such a representation of how uh, a man has taken so much of your word, the promises in the uh, Mosaic Covenant, and woven them together into a prayer that focuses on the ultimate promise of the Mosaic Covenant in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30, that there would be a final ultimate restoration of the people to the land in obedience to you. And so the focal point of this prayer, despite all of the judgment that is, that is spoken of, is of your ultimate forgiveness and of your grace, which comes because of the uh, because of your character and ultimately because of the work of Christ on the cross that paid for our sins. Father, we pray that we might be challenged to be reminded of, of how we should pray and how we can take your word and use that in our own spiritual life to have a more effective prayer life and that as we claim promises, we are reminded of the certainty that you always fulfill your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.